The scripture text for the sermon this morning is Ephesians 6, verse 4. We're going to begin reading back in chapter 5, at verse 22. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, and that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We read God's holy word to that point this morning. Our text is that fourth verse of chapter 6. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Beloved of God, the Reformed doctrine of original sin is the truth that the human race is one. We are connected. And therefore, when the head of the human race fell, we fell. And the whole human race is therefore guilty of the sin of its head, and therefore receives the punishment of that guilt, part of which is a polluted nature that is passed down to the entire human race. That's received by everyone at the moment of conception. The doctrine is so clear in Scripture, and the reality of this truth is so obvious everywhere you look around you that I, for one, have never doubted the truth of this doctrine. Except for one brief moment, and that is when I first held my oldest children, my twin boys, in my arms for the first time, and look at them so tender and precious and sweet and so seemingly innocent. And I remember thinking to myself, is it really true 
that this being has Adam's depraved nature in him. But as a parent knows, those kinds of questions dissipate very, very quickly. As the child expresses the nature that is in him. And so quickly, a screaming and the arching of the back that is a screaming obviously in anger even though the child can't talk, an expression of the nature that is within as they get a little bit older, the stomping of the feet and the hitting and some biting. And then for me, a specific moment that is cemented in my mind when one of my oldest, not able to walk yet, still crawling, could say a few words, but not very many. But enough to know what the word no meant. <clears throat> started crawling on the floor towards the house plant and immediately began to climb and, and pull himself up on the, the planter. And though I admit that the houseplant was on his level, there was a temptation there for him nonetheless, the whole time he was crawling, I was pointing at him saying, no, 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 no. And yet he pulled himself up, and as I was continuing to say no, no, he, he turned back <clears throat> and looked at me and held eye contact with me the entire time as I'm still saying no, no, no. He's reaching out for this this beautiful looking flower that's on this plant and still looking at me, plucks it, puts it in his mouth. Not fruit, a flower, but I couldn't help but think to myself, it's the exact same sin. The exact same, this is in him. I didn't teach him this. He saw no example of this. He didn't learn this by, by a corrupt example. Somebody, it's just in him. He's reaching out to become God of his own life. Just like Adam did reaching out for the fruit. It's not learned. It's in them. And sometimes that realization can be a bit difficult for a first-time father. I passed that down to him. The present that I gave him on his first birthday was a vicious, corrupt nature. But in God's wisdom and in his providence, and praise be to him, it's not the only thing that fathers give to their children. It's not the only thing that he uses parents for. We're also part of God's grace to them, grace that is ultimately stronger than the sin nature that's passed down through us to them. One day, that sovereign grace will eradicate that sin nature all together. But before that, long before that, normally God's grace puts new life 
in the heart next to that sin nature, breaking the absolute monopoly that that sin nature has over their mind and heart and soul. And God uses parents to feed that new nature and to help them to mortify that old nature so that they can grow up and mature under God's grace, working also through the parents to live to the praise of their maker. And fathers have a key place in this. And that's the heart of our text for this morning in Ephesians 6, verse 4. The Father's place in that gift of grace to work a positive consecration to God in the life of the child. Let's take that up this morning under the theme, A Father's Calling, A Father's Calling. Much of what we'll have to say applies to mothers too, but fathers in a unique way. A father's calling. First, a father's calling is to do the Lord's work. Second, it is to provoke them not. And third, it is to nourish them. First, a father's calling is to do the Lord's work. The last three words of Ephesians 6 verse 4 are very important and exert themselves upon the entirety of the text, almost function as an umbrella concept over the whole text. And that's where we're going to start this morning. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. For the Lord there is the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of the Father is to bring up his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That means two things. First of all, it means that the father in the home is under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a head himself, but he is under the authority of a greater head than him, the Lord Jesus. That means that the question that the father asks when he takes up this position in his home is not merely, what do I think that I should do as a father in the home? But it's what would Christ have me to do? I am under his headship, his authority. The question that the father asks when he takes up this position is not either merely, what did my dad do? That might be a helpful question sometimes. It might not be a helpful question sometimes. But the question ultimately is, what does Christ call me to do? And if my earthly father helps me to answer that question by his instruction and by his example, good. If he does not, then I must turn away from his example and instruction. And if it's a mix, then I must discern and do both. The question is not either. Do I feel myself more capable of this than my wife? But the question is, what does Christ call me to do? And even if I think she is more capable in some ways, this is my calling as a father. What he gives to me to be head of this home, she is a help to me, to be sure, a great help to me. But I can't relegate this calling to her. I must take it up before the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it means first in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Second, the nurture and admonition of the Lord means that the instruction that we give as parents 
as fathers in particular in the home, must be the Lord's own instruction, His nurture, His admonition. So that the goal is that when the children grow up, they are able to look back and to say, at least to a certain extent, as much as in us lies, they are able to say, my father raised me in such a way that it's as though Christ himself was raising me through him. He gave me the Lord's instruction, the Lord's admonition. Something we can't do perfectly, of course, as sinners. Which is why we always go ourselves to the cross and point them to the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work in us and for us. But we give them the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus himself. There's something similar. It's not exactly the same. But as the minister proclaims the word of God and as he proclaims the word of God faithfully, it's Christ who is bringing that word. There's something similar in the home when the father is faithful, instructing the children with the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ that he himself would give, that Christ himself is therefore nurturing and instructing them through the Father. That's marvelous. So that it becomes the fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 54 verse 13, all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children that God uses this faithful instruction and admonition in such a way that Christ is working through it and he is admonishing and he is instructing. What an astounding calling. What an astounding privilege that in spite of all of my sin and failure, my weakness as a father, That God can use a father as a means by which he himself trains up the children in the home. If there's anything that ought to hold the father to the seriousness of his calling and keep him from laziness and self-seeking in his calling, it is this. Now all of this implies, doesn't it, a certain view that God in Christ must have of the children of believers. If he is calling the Father to provide his own nurture and admonition, according to his word, such that through that he himself will nurture and admonish and bring up the children, that it must be that God views the children of believers as his children to be trained by him himself, also through the Father And that is, in fact, in line with the rest of sacred Scripture. That God views the children of believers, at least organically speaking, as His children, and the elect among them, absolutely, as His children. Why else would He give one of the Ten Commandments, the fifth one that the Apostle Paul speaks of here at the beginning of Ephesians 6? Why would He give one of the Ten Commandments specifically to the children of the church if they were not part of his children tasked by him himself to raise. And remember how the Ten Commandments begin. 
I've brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I've redeemed you, the children of the church too. And therefore, I care for you and I instruct you. And therefore, I give you commands for your life. And so now when the Apostle Paul quotes that fifth commandment in verse 1, the first one of the Ten Commandments that has a promise attached to it, and then in verse 4 begins to speak to parents, especially to fathers, to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have to keep that, that notion, that consciousness of the covenant in the back of your mind as you approach this verse. Why is God commanding this of fathers? It's because they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant in church of God. And he himself will raise them and will raise them also through the father and the parents in the home. There's raising that he does totally apart from the parents and totally apart from the father. But there's raising that he himself does. The nurture and admonition of the Lord is given through this nurture and admonition Especially the father is responsible for this in the home. And so the Lord gives this command to the fathers particularly. Now, of course, there may be homes in unique circumstances where the father is not present. And God's grace is sufficient in those situations and there is help in the body of Jesus Christ in those situations. But the way, the regular way that God has ordained for it to take place is that he puts the Father in the home and calls the Father to be responsible for this ultimately in the home. The Holy Spirit through Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 23 has just said, now the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And now the apostle is extending that. He's not only the head of his wife, but he's the head of the children too. This whole home is run under his headship. And the responsibility is ultimately his. And the accounting for it is ultimately his too. It will come back to him. It doesn't mean he does everything himself. His wife is his great help meet, and time-wise even perhaps, does more of this than him. And that father certainly uses the good Christian school that can truly stand in his place and teach the truths to which he himself subscribes as they apply to all spheres of life in this world so that his child is, is brought up faithfully unto the Lord. He uses the, the church, the catechism instruction of the church so that the home and the church and the school function like a triangular-shaped womb in which his child grows. He knows that his child needs more than him. And in that womb, the child matures in a, in a holistic way. All of this to be sure. But that's not all the father does. He also engages himself in this work personally, invests himself into it, at devotions, at mealtimes, at bedtime, when they rise up, when they lie down, when walking by the way, he views this calling not merely as one where he brings home enough money to pay for them to be raised by other people, but he is leading and he is guiding 
And He is caring for. And with hands-on interaction, He is raising them Himself. He disciplines. He hugs. He guides. He instructs. He shows. He teaches the wonders of God and of His ways. He gives them to know the bond of the covenant in His own relationship with them Himself. He shows them the faithful instruction and discipline of God, of Christ, coming through Him with godly determination. He gives Himself to this because it's Christ's own directive to Him. And because He represents Christ, and Christ works through His faithful presence in the home. The Apostle then tells us very practically what this work in the home must look like in a negative and in a positive way. First of all, negatively, the father must not do that work in such a way that he provokes his children to wrath. And then second, in a positive way, he must do this work this way that he brings them up in nurture and admonition. So first, the negative. The father must not provoke his children to wrath. Why? Because Christ does not provoke the little lambs to wrath. And he must be in line with Christ. He must bring Christ's nurture and admonition. He represents Christ to the child. Don't provoke them <clears throat> to anger it means don't stir them up to unnecessary bitterness. That is, don't function in your home in such a way that you step outside of the way of Christ and therefore sinfully make yourself a stumbling block to them, a cause, a temptation for them to anger, wrath, and bitterness understand well, the calling is not to make it so that your children never ever get angry or upset. In their sin, our children are sometimes going to be unjustly angry. That nature from Adam that's been passed down to them is going to be angry, unjustly so at times, if we're doing our job correctly. Some parents, perhaps at times bolstered by a wrong understanding of this verse, start to parent in such a way or start to think in such a way that the, that the goal of their parenting is that their child is never upset. And so they give their child whatever the child wants just to keep the child from ever being angry because after all, if I don't, then it must be that I'm provoking this child to anger. And so they don't really discipline their children or they tell their children no, but then change their mind very quickly because I don't want you to get upset. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In fact, the very thing that the Apostle calls us to do positively, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is going to make the children angry sometimes. Unjustly angry, but angry. Their sin nature doesn't like that nurture, that discipline, that 
even if it's faithful and right and true. But the point of the apostle here is don't provoke them to unnecessary anger, unjust anger by your own sinful behavior as a father. Don't sinfully provoke them to unjust immediate anger and long-term anger as they reflect back upon their life. A parent can provoke his child sinfully to uh, an immediate anger in three ways. First, by placing unjust demands upon a child, unjust demands. That is, by having a, a certain sinful idealism that expects the child to be perfect or expects the child to be something that is beyond what their stage of development would allow them to be. This kind of approach can sometimes be a temptation for new parents who don't know exactly what to expect about the different stages of life. Or it can sometimes be a temptation by very driven parents that really want to drive their children to be the ideal. By the way, the catechism books that are written for various stages can be helpful for parents here to understand the stage that their own child is at. And even the school books and the school teachers can be, be very helpful for parents and new parents especially to avoid this error of not recognizing their tenderness or not recognizing their lack of development and expecting them to be more advanced than they possibly can be. This can provoke them to anger, to frustration, but it's because they can't do what is expected of them. The demands upon them are unjust and they become frustrated. This is a, a sinful provoking to anger that a parent can perform in his parenting. Sometimes, these kinds of unjust demands parents can place upon their children not merely out of ignorance, but out of pride. My child is going to be the ideal. My child is going to be the, the brightest and the most successful and the most mature. And we don't take into consideration each child and their individuality or the stages that the child is at and place expectations upon them that are beyond their capability or their individual makeup. Undue expectations, unjust demands. Second, we can provoke our children to an immediate kind of frustration and anger by unjust punishments. Sometimes that can be related to the first one. If we have unjust demands and then they don't meet them and punish them for it, unjust punishments. But, but even apart from that, there are sometimes some parents, <clears throat> sometimes some fathers in particular, who seem to know of only one response to everything the child does that they don't like, that annoys them, whether it's sinful or just as something that they don't like, and it is 
to scream and yell, to blow up. Even if the child has not rebelled, and anyone can tell, the child can tell, that the punishment is not fit for the crime, and it provokes them to wrath, it provokes them to anger and frustration. The parent who punishes this way often is merely punishing to release his own anger, his own frustration. And any time we punish merely to release our own anger or our own frustration or our own annoyance with them for doing it unjustly, then there's no love that's coming towards them. It's not corrective, it's not restorational, but it's punitive. I'm going to make them pay. I'm not trying to bring them to the right path. I'm trying to make them pay for what they have done. An unrighteous and unjust punishment. Unjust demands, unjust punishments. And third, there is a provoking to an immediate frustration, an immediate anger, when there is inconsistency in our parenting, inconsistency in our discipline, where the discipline totally depends on what kind of mood dad and mom are in. If they're in a good mood today, everything goes. We know we're not going to get punished for anything. We can, we can push the line. We can cross the line. Nothing's going to happen. If they're in a bad mood, there's nothing we can do right. And even accidents are going to get a first-degree kind of treatment, an inconsistency in our discipline, and they know, they see, and it's frustrating to them. Inconsistency in what we say and what we do in our parenting. We tell them to do something, but then don't back it up. Or tell them not to do something, but then do it ourselves. Teach them that this is wrong. This is insubordination according to the law of Christ. And you may do this, but there goes dad doing it, or mom doing it. We bring them to the house of God and we tell them to receive the word of God as the word of Jehovah God and to go put it into practice in their life. But then there seem to be big chunks of the word of God that, that dad or dad and mom don't seem to want to receive and don't put into practice in their life. And of course, we all have sinful inconsistencies to be sure. No one is perfect. But there's a big difference, beloved, between hearing the word of God and going out and seeking to mortify our own sin and fighting against it and working even if there are inconsistencies and imperfections and dismissing the word of God altogether. And they see that. And it's frustrating to them. There can be inconsistency in our love for the children that we seem to love them more at one stage than we do at another stage. Or love this child more than that child. Favoritism can provoke to an unnecessary anger. God is not a father like that. 
He's not a father like Jacob, who showed favoritism to Joseph above his other sons. But God expresses his love for all of his children. And a father must too be careful. And a mother too. Sometimes that's hard. Maybe one child has a personality that a parent is attracted to more than other personalities. Or maybe the personality is more like that parent's personality. And there's a natural tendency to give more attention here. And a parent has to be careful. Or maybe one child has certain gifts and abilities. Maybe ones that the parent always wanted to have themselves. And so there can be a temptation to start to kind of live vicariously through the gifts and abilities that this particular child has and neglect the other children. It it provokes the other children. It sinfully provokes them to wrath and immediate frustration. They can see it. And then there is a provoking to a more long-term anger or wrath. That won't come upon the child as the child is growing up in the home necessarily, but when the child becomes an adult and thinks about the home life in which he was raised, a frustration and anger, permissiveness, And parenting will provoke a child to this anger. Of course, the child loves it when he's young. I get to watch all the TV that I want to watch. There's no rules here. There's no guidelines. Nothing that's enforced. Maybe says something every once in a while, but none of it's enforced. Any video game for as long as I want And the child thinks it's great. And the other children at school say, your parents are so cool. They let you do this. But as the child gets older and looks back upon his raising and maybe even sees that there's some things in his life that he's having a hard time removing from his life because my parents were so permissive. This has become so ingrained in me. Maybe even an addiction that he can't stop and wanted to stop. And there's a kind of frustration and anger. Why didn't my father ever stop me? Why didn't he say anything to me? Why didn't he warn me? Why didn't he put consequences on me at least? I know he knew about it. I know he smelled it on my breath when I came home as a teenager. And he didn't do anything. He just turned away. I saw it on his face that he knew. He didn't say a word. I know that he knew this girl or this boy did not share my faith. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. Sometimes some of the bitterest young adults are the ones who have grown spiritually and then look back in some kind of frustration and anger for the utter permissiveness of their father as they grew up. And maybe it wasn't even because the father was being lazy or selfish. Maybe he thought that he was really trying to love his child by being permissive, but the damage is still the same. Don't mix up love with indulgence. Indulgence is not love, and the child will realize it someday. 
And then, of course, there is another ditch, isn't there? On the other hand, there is the opposite. A kind of overbearing, utterly rule-oriented kind of overprotection that will provoke a child to anger in the future. Where the child is growing and developing and becoming an adult, but the parent doesn't want to allow the child to become an adult and, and gives no freedom whatsoever. There's just an overbearing squashing of the child as the parents micromanage every last detail of the child's existence. And the child can never develop. He never learns how to make a decision, never learns how to put principles into practice. And he gets older and and he bears the difficulty of this. I, I don't know what to do unless somebody just tells me what to do. And that child will struggle with some kind of frustration and anger. My parents didn't teach me as I got older how to take principles and to put them into practice. And then there is a failure to instruct in the things of God that will produce this long-term anger in a faithful covenant child. Where a father becomes an I sent him father. My calling is just to send them here and to send them there and to pay for them to go here and that's it. And never to take up the work of fatherhood and parenting himself. Always too busy. Always too lazy. And when that child gets older and looks back and thinks, why did not my father teach me anything himself? Why didn't he show me the way? Why didn't he, he instruct me Maybe he didn't even take the time to do devotions as a family. Or maybe he did, but he just read a couple verses, shut the Bible, and moved on. He didn't teach me anything, tell me anything. I, in his capacity, I understand that he's not a preacher, but even in his capacity, why didn't he? That will provoke to a kind of long-term anger and a kind of sense and feeling of that child as he becomes an adult. Now, I don't know how to teach my children. I didn't see my father teach me. And then, finally, there's a kind of <clears throat> sinful provoking to a long-term wrath and anger. When a father or a mother or both together have an oppressive kind of critical spirit that dominates the home life. There's no warmth, and no bond, no fellowship, love. That's usually, not always, but usually, something rising out of a, a deep-seated anger or struggle or frustration in the parent that's not been properly dealt with and so comes out in this way that there's always tearing the children down, always 
ripping them to shreds, mocking their little quirks, maybe even calling them names, never encouraging, only discouraging, and even when they do well, finding the one or two thing that they should have done better. This will provoke them to a long-term kind of anger in the sense that they can never please their earthly father and that they can never please their heavenly father, even redeemed in Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3, verse 21, the parallel to this passage adds a, a phrase at the end. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And that's what all these things do. All the things that provoke to an immediate anger or to a long-term anger, they discourage the child. Discourage the child in the living of the Christian life. Lead them to say, what is the point? To be frustrated, but that cannot be. Christ does not discourage the little lambs in his raising of them. And the father must not. Instead of provoking them to anger, positively, we are to bring them up in the nurture and admonition that the scriptures call us to give them. Why? Because the Lord does this. This is the Lord's bringing up and nurture and admonition. There's three words there in the positive part of the text. Bring up, nurture, and admonition. The word for bring up is a, is a big word. It's an umbrella word, a big, broad word that refers to the calling to lead them into health and maturity from every point of view, a holistic bringing them up so that this helpless little one in the 20 years under our instruction or whatever it is, is able to stand now with both feet in the midst of God's world, in the midst of the church, in the midst of their home, full with an understanding of how to live in the covenant of grace unto Jehovah God. The calling then is to bring everything necessary to bear upon their lives for maturity and godly wisdom. And the great example of this is Solomon in the book of Proverbs where from how many different angles this father instructs his children in how to live life in God's covenant faithfully. Finances, sexuality, marriage, friendship, hard work, reverence for God, respect for the inspired word of God, dealing with anger, alcohol, the strange woman, greed, covetousness, gossip, prayer, pride, stewardship, and at the heart of it all in chapter 8, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is wisdom and is the heart of all true wisdom. That's the calling of a father. That's what it means to bring them up, to bring them up in such a way that they're, they're nourished with this bond of love in which we are maturing them in all of these things. The word is used in chapter 5, verse 29, where the husband must also nourish his wife. It's a term, Calvin says, that means the children must be fondly cherished as they're brought up in this holistic kind of maturity so that there is firm conviction that my father's word is law and at the same time that I'm fondly cherished by my father. That's bring them up. 
And then the word nurture, bring them up in the nurture and admonition. Nurture and admonition are part of how you give them this holistic development. Nurture is the word for chastisement. It's used in Hebrews 12 where God chastens his sons. It's regulating their lives in such a way that there are good expectations that you stay in this bound, the bound of the law of God. And if you go outside, I chasten you so that you know and understand that it never will go well for you when you step outside of God's law. I represent God in Christ to you and going outside of Christ's law will not go well for you. And you apply that chastisement to them. And then third, admonition. You bring them up by the use of nurture and admonition. Admonition is the verbal instruction, teaching, correction, encouragement. So that I take the time to explain why this is life in God's covenant. Why these are the rules as they're getting older and can understand what the rules are. Explain why things go the way they go in the covenant of grace. Explain, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Explain the whole counsel of God as we are able. And show them the Christ in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his redeeming grace. And going there to that Christ ourselves, with them and in front of them. If you and I have been listening at all, we're humbled by this text. As fathers, as mothers too, we can see our own failures at various points, maybe many times over. But part of what children must learn is that they see their parents go to the cross themselves when they are convicted of their own sins and failures. That they see that Christ is the only answer for my failures and the only answer for strength to get back up and to live faithfully as a parent. To show them this. To let them hear sometimes you saying, Father, I have failed in this way or in that. Forgive me. Forgive me for my sin and help me to be a faithful parent in this home so that they see they see the threefold division of the Heidelberg Catechism in practice in your life guilt, grace, gratitude always and even with respect to your own parenting they see it there are children who grow up and who say you know, there were years of my life, I had to grow and get over this, but years of my, my life where I could hardly pray the Lord's Prayer. I could hardly say, Our Father who art in heaven. I struggled so much to pray that because I struggled so much of thinking of God like my earthly father. My earthly father was not a good father. He let me know in a million ways that I was not fondly cherished. Or on the other hand, he cherished me all right, but he, he was so squishy, he was like jelly. He was a pushover all the time. My word was law in my home, not my, my father's word. And so looking up to father, 
It's hard for me to think of him as someone other than this person who blew up at everything that I did or said or this person who never, ever guided me, really. And there's grace that overcomes that eventually under the Word of God as as one learns to see God as He is as a Father. But my prayer, Father, for You and my prayer for me as a Father is that more and more representing Christ to them, they come to us later in our life and they say to us, Dad, You weren't perfect by any means. You weren't. And I know that. But you did raise me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Himself. And I know who God is. Also through your raising of me. And when you taught me. And when you cared for me. And when you loved me. And when you chastened me. I can see it was Christ Himself who was doing that in my life. It was the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus himself. And when I pray, our Father who art in heaven, I know both the firmness and the fondness of my heavenly Father through you. May God grant that. Amen. Father in heaven, bless the proclamation of, our, of thy word. Father, we confess our sins to thee as fathers, as mothers too. We pray, forgive us for them and our failures in the cross of Jesus Christ. O oh Lord God, strengthen us and encourage us also. And thou art a God who is greater than our sins. And encourage us too by this word to be more and more faithful in our homes for thy glory and the good of the generation that is to come. In our Savior's name we pray, amen.